Good. We're in Isaiah 9. I didn't say that earlier. We're in Isaiah 9. We've been there for the past couple of weeks. This is the third week of Advent. Advent is where we prepare our hearts for Christmas. We're using Isaiah 9, 6, and 7 as our theme passage. We look back to Jesus' first coming. We look out to Jesus' present coming to us through the work of the Holy Spirit. We look forward to Jesus' return that we read about in Revelation 19. So Isaiah 9 is helping us do that. Verse 6 and 7. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. I forgot to say one thing. The um, rent deal is a secret. Don't go tell Brian or any of those guys. That way if we don't make it, they'll never know. I'm just, I'm joking about that. We'll make it. But I'm not joking about it being a secret. Isaiah, so we've been using those four titles. And those have been our, we've kind of been bouncing off of those. Wonderful counselor, one who plans and works wonders. Mighty God, this divine warrior who overcomes or defeats all of the enemies of God. Today we're going to look at Everlasting Father. And your first thought may be that would make a lot of sense. We know Jesus is the Son, so how is he also the Father? If this scripture applies to Jesus, how can he be both the Son of God and this Everlasting Father? Remember, Isaiah is looking for a king, flesh and blood, human origin king. A king sent by God, yes, empowered by God, yes, uh, led by God, yes, but he's looking for an earthly, a human King. And so when he says everlasting father, you can maybe lowercase letter those. Uh, and he's thinking father metaphorically, uh, uh, some, a king who operates like a father, who takes care of his subjects, who protects and provides for his people, and who does that for a long time. He's so good, we hope that his reign endures. You can see some scriptures there up on the screen that speak to those words in that context. So Isaiah is looking for somebody, a king who is going to take such good care of his people that people will say, his subjects will say, we hope you never die. We hope that you stay on the throne for years and years and years and years and years because you take such good care of us. You protect us and you provide for us. Now for us, looking looking back through the lens of Jesus at Isaiah 9, 6, and 7, we can see greater significance to all of these things. Or for Isaiah, the, the titles may have had lowercase letters for us, They're capital letters. When Isaiah says, wonderful counselor, he's thinking of someone who's really good at creating battle plans. Someone who's really good at creating a strategy to defeat an enemy. When he says, mighty God, he means someone who is sent by God as a warrior. We said that last week. It could be um, God's warrior. Someone sent by God, a king, who will lead his people in battle over all of these other countries who are attacking Judah at this point. When we see those through the lens of Jesus, we see something different. We see wonderful counselor as this one who works miracles to save his people. He doesn't have to devise a battle plan. He works these miracles, not just as one sent by God as a, as a warrior, but as God himself, as a divine warrior who overcomes not just literal enemies or physical enemies, but overcomes our true enemies of sin and Satan and death. And the same thing is true with everlasting father. When we say Jesus is an everlasting father, what we mean is he's one who takes care of us forever. He's one who takes care of us 
forever. Do we see that when we look back in the Gospels? Do we see Jesus as an everlasting father? I'm going to change labels, and I'm going to start using good shepherd. I think that's the New Testament uh, picture of everlasting father. You won't see that everlasting father idea or that label in the New Testament, but that heart, leading, providing, protecting, you see that in Jesus. And I think primarily you see it in him as the good shepherd. He makes a statement in John 10. He says twice, I am the good shepherd. And you can see there some of those bullet points, the types of things that Jesus says as the good shepherd he is going to do. All of that is taken from John 10. You see leading, you see protecting, you see Providing, You see this intimate relationship that he has with those who are following him. So Jesus says, I'm going to be that guy. And in my mind, everlasting father and good shepherd are almost synonymous. They're two different ways of describing the same reality or describing the same heart of Jesus. He's playing this role of taking care of his people. And for us, he's going to take care of us forever, not just for a really long time. We've been looking at this slide for a couple of weeks. All these different wonders or miracles that we saw just through Luke. Those, uh, we talked about Jesus working wonders, and we listed those. We talked about Jesus as a mighty God overcoming sin and Satan and death. Those deliverance miracles and resurrection miracles really speak to those. When Jesus delivers someone from, a t- from demonic bondage, he's saying, I'm stronger than Satan, I've defeated him. When he raises someone from the dead, he's saying, I'm stronger than death, I've defeated it. As well, When we talk about Jesus as the everlasting father, Jesus as the good shepherd, I think those two in the top right corner uh, illustrate that. He says he's the good shepherd, and then he does a couple of things to demonstrate that. If you remember that story, Jesus is in the boat with his 12 disciples. The boat's about 25 feet long, uh, so not, not too big. He's there with his 12 disciples. He's asleep in one end of the boat, and this huge storm comes up. The Bible calls it a squall. Several of the guys are experienced fishermen, and they're even scared. They're afraid for their life. They think they're going to die. And at some point, one of them approaches Jesus and says, don't you care if we drown? That's what they say. Don't you care if we die? And he wakes up, and he calms the storm. He protects them. He takes care of them physically in that moment. You remember the story feeding the 5,000? That's in all four Gospels. Jesus has a huge crowd, 5,000 men, probably twelve to 15,000 total they listen to him speak all day. It's the end of the day. The guys hadn't had anything to eat. And Jesus says to his disciples, we've got to feed these guys. And they say, what, you want us to go buy food for 15,000 people? And he says, no, I want you to feed them. What do you have? We've got five loaves of bread and two fish. And he says, that'll work. And he takes that and he multiplies it to feed all of this crowd. He's providing for them. It's not in Luke. It's in Matthew and Mark. There's another feeding where he feeds 4,000 men. So maybe you're talking about 10,000 people total. And these folks have been with him for three days and haven't eaten. They've been listening to him and interacting with him for three days, and it's time to be done. And Jesus says they can't go home because they might not make it. They're going to pass out. They're going to faint on the way. We've got to take care of them again. And then he multiplies a handful of bread and fish to feed these 10,000 people. Both of those stories, you see this provision. God takes care of his people. He protects. He provides. And we see him leading throughout Matthew, Mark. Luke and John, physically going from place to place with his disciples literally following after him. He's a good shepherd. He says it, and he does it. We look over towards Acts. It's a continuation of what we see 
in Jesus' ministry. Remember, we said we live in the book of Acts. That's the time between when Jesus ascended into heaven and when he descends, when he comes again in Revelation 19. That's where we live spiritually. Politically, no. Financially, no. Technologically, no. Culturally, no. Spiritually, yes. Acts is our book. That is our environment spiritually. And so the things we see in Acts give us insight into how God wants to work in our lives today. In the Gospels, we see the Holy Spirit working through Jesus. And in Acts, we see Jesus working through the Holy Spirit. And so we see the same things. We see leading, we see protecting, and we see providing. Jesus was the good shepherd. Jesus is the good shepherd. And you can see that here. There's just a couple of stories. We won't dive into detail. Jesus leads people all through the book of Acts. That's just one I picked out. Paul wants to go into a place called Bithynia. It says God prevented him from going. We don't know what that looks like. God prevented him from going. Then at night, Paul has a dream. And in this dream, a guy from Macedonia begs him and says, we, you've got to come see us. And Paul says, okay. And so he and his group go to Macedonia. So you've got Paul hearing a no, okay, hearing a yes, and obeying. Protection. Peter is arrested by Herod, and Herod's going to kill him. He's chained, and he's got two guards next to him, and he's in a jail. So handcuffed, guards, jail. And then one night, there's a group of people praying for him. And Peter thinks he's having a dream. The chains fall off of him. And he gets up and he follows this angel out. The guards stay asleep. The door opens up. And when he gets outside, then he realizes it wasn't a dream. This, this really happened. He was physically protected, miraculously so, from death. Provides physically. You can uh, Acts 4, 33 and 34 says the grace of God was so... Um, powerful among the church that there were no needs among the people. And spiritually, there's an Ethiopian in Acts 8 who's reading Isaiah. He's reading about the suffering servant. He didn't have a clue what he's reading about. He's like, I don't even know who this is. And God says to Philip, I want you to go to this, this place. Go stand on this road. And he does. And then he sees this chariot. He says, I want you to go up to the chariot and ask the guy what he's doing. And so Philip does that, and the Ethiopian says, I'm reading, and I don't have a clue who this guy is talking about. And Philip says, well, let me tell you. And he fills in the blanks, and the Ethiopian gets baptized that day. There's a guy named Cornelius. He's a Gentile. He's a God-fearer. So he's, he recognizes God, but he hasn't fully committed to Judaism. And he's a man, he, he prays, and in response to his prayer, he has a, a, a vision. God says, you need to go get Peter and tell him to come to your house, and Cornelius is like, he's not going to come. He's a Jew. I'm a Gentile. He's not going to come. And God says, you need to do this. And so he sends a delegation, a couple of guys, to go get Peter. And in that moment, God is also speaking to Peter, saying some guys are going to come from Cornelius' house, and you need to go. You need to go, and you need to talk to him. And Peter does and shares the gospel with those guys, and his whole household is saved. You've got spiritual provision. These guys who are hungry, Cornelius and this Ethiopian, and God meets their needs through Philip. And through Peter. And so you see all of the same things we see in the Gospels we see in Acts. Jesus continues as a good shepherd through the work of the Spirit to lead. He continues to protect. And he continues to provide. And so for us, we live in that world. That's where we live in the book of Acts. Those same three things I would say are available to all of us. Jesus is your good shepherd. And through the work of the Spirit, he wants to lead you. And he wants to protect you. And he wants to provide for you. We're going to spend the rest of our time looking at those. Most of our time on this idea 
of being led. This is a huge deal for me. It's a big issue for our church. We talk about it all the time, the importance of listening to the voice of God. That's just from John chapter 10, some bullet points. And what I want you to see is how important listening to God is to Jesus, how much, how much uh, that is a fundamental function or fundamental reality of our relationship with him. And what I want you to see is those are statements of facts. That's just, that's reality. That's Jesus saying, this is how it is. My sheep know my voice. He doesn't say some of my sheep will know my voice. He doesn't say my super spiritual sheep will know my voice. He doesn't say sheep with master's degrees or sheep who are missionaries. He doesn't say that. He says, my sheep will know my voice. If you're a follower of Jesus, what does that make you? Sheep. So what does that mean for you? You know his voice. If you don't hear anything else today, you hear that. As a son or a daughter of God, as one of his sheep, what Jesus says is, you know his voice. And you're going, no, I don't. I don't recognize it. So then my choices are to believe you, as wonderful as you are, or to believe Jesus. Who, am I gonna, who do we go with? You know, I want you to get, you know his voice. He's never spoken to me. He speaks to you all the time. You just don't recognize it. That's it. That's the only problem is you don't recognize it. Some of you don't have any confidence at all. You think, eh, not for me. Some of you may not want to listen to his voice because you want to do your own thing. But I think that's a very small percentage. Most of the people in this room, I'd probably say just about all. I don't know everybody. You want to be led. And you get frustrated because you're going, I can't, I can't get my hands on it. I can't hear. I can't discern. Just relax. You know his voice. Galatians 5.25. We live by the Spirit, so let's keep in step with. Let's walk in. Let's follow after the Spirit's leadings in every area of our life. He says right there, you are his sheep. You know his voice. He calls you by name. He will lead you. I don't want you to feel pressure around that. I want you to hear that as an invitation, even as a statement of fact. This is the situation that you find yourself in. The issue is not that he's not speaking, and it's not that you can't hear him. I think for most of us, it's just an issue of confidence that really centers around recognition. Some of us have grown up in environments where we were never encouraged to listen to the Lord, and so it seems foreign to us, or it seems mystical. It's not. It's, it's none of those things. It's a regular, you can call it a practice, a regular discipline. It doesn't matter to me. But if you're going to go far with Jesus, this is a reality for all of us to step into. The Bible is full of everything that we need for life and godliness. You want to know who God is? Read the Bible. You want to know what, you're, what it looks like, our standing before him? Read the Bible. What does it mean to be saved? Read the Bible. You want to know who to marry? It's not in there. You want to know whether you should, should send your kid to public or private school? It's not in there. Should you take that job? It's not in there. Rather than giving each one of us our own personal Bible with every choice we're ever going to make, what God has done is said, you know what? Better idea. I'm going to put my spirit within you, and he can lead you and guide you through all of these different decisions. The big stuff for everybody. It's in black and white right here in the Word. But all of these other things, the stuff of our life, it's not in black and white for most of us. He gives you his spirit so he can lead you into those things, guide you into those things, and you absolutely can hear and recognize his voice. Five ways he speaks to us. 
These aren't mine. They all start with the same two letters, which is not me. This is from a guy named Nicky Gumble. Compelling spirit. Direct communication with God. When you hear that, that can be like the big things, angels and dreams and visions. Often, it's, you may even call it your gut. It's kind of down here. It's just this sense, I should do this. I should not do that. Could that be the Holy Spirit guiding you through your gut, if you like? It's a revelation. Sometimes it's thoughts that you have that flash through your mind. If you have a thought while you're praying or you have a thought during worship, grab onto it. If you have a thought that's better than you, it's smarter than you are, it's kinder than you are, it very well may be the Lord. Grab onto that. Explore that a little bit. Begin to recognize, assume that God is speaking to you and begin to use that as the filter for these things that flash through your mind or these feelings that you have, if you like that better, in your heart. Or your gut, if that's more comfortable for you. God absolutely speaks to us directly by the Holy Spirit. He speaks to us through commanding Scripture. You have an enemy. What, you, what should you do? You should love him. You don't need to ask the Lord. He's already told you. Someone sinned against you. What should you do? You should pray for them and you should forgive them. You don't need to ask him about that. How should you treat your children? You should not exasperate them. It's already in there. If you're married, you love your wife like Jesus loves you. If you're a, a wife, you honor your husband. You do those things. It's, it's already in there. You don't need to spend a lot of time on that. You honor your parents. That type of stuff is all already in there. Those are general commands that are true for everybody always. Sometimes you may be reading the Bible. You want, you're, you're struggling with something and you feel like, oh, something jumped off the page at you. That's great. That's a personal interpretation for you. That's something where you feel like God is speaking directly to you through the word about a situation in your life. That happens regularly as well. Next, counsel of the saints. We say this all the time. God speaks to the body through the body. So these are the people who love God and who love you. It's not 20. It's five. It's a handful of people who love God and love you, who you're transparent You allow them to see into you, and with whom you're vulnerable, you allow them to speak into you. Transparency says, I'll allow you to see what's going on in my life. Vulnerability says, I'm going to allow you to to influence those decisions. There are plenty of people who are transparent, but they're not vulnerable. Both of those things, that opens me up to what God wants to say to me through other people. Those are the big three for me. Compelling spirit, commanding scripture, counsel of the saints. If it's a big decision, I'm looking for all three of those things to line up, dot, dot, dot. Small decisions, you just run. Samuel says to Saul, whatever your hand finds to do, you do it. The Holy Spirit lives within you on your daily, just going about your day. He will convict you and compel you in all of those things. And you can just live in a way that kind of glorifies and honors him. Those of you who have kids, you don't want your 14 or 15-year-old coming up to you asking you, can I do this, can I do this, can I do this, can I do this, can I do this? No, at some point, what you want to say is, you know, what it's, you know what it is to be a part of this family. We've been doing this for 15 years now. I've given you what I've got. You, you know my expectations. Just live. I'll let you know if you get off track. Big things, absolutely. Let's run those through together. But you don't need to be asking me for whether about every step that you take. And the same thing is true from the Lord. That's not blasphemous. It's the same thing for him. He says, you're one of my children. We've been doing this for a while. You know what I expect. You know what it's like to be a part of my family. 
You don't have to ask me whether you should wear blue jeans or khakis to work tomorrow. Like, just put on some pants. Let's go. Those types of things. So the big decisions. I want a lot of clarity, and I want all three of those dots to line up. Second, the last two. Like, this is 17 and 18 to me. It's not four and five. Common sense and circumstantial signs. Common sense is wisdom, and there's nothing wrong with it. The only issue for me is I think wisdom can often become prayerless, and we just kind of go along with this is how things have always been done or this is how I always operate, and we can kind of cut God out of the decision-making process. We can pro and con it and spreadsheet it to death, and we've never asked him to get involved. So that's my biggest caution with common sense. It's not, I'm not criticizing. I'm just saying make sure that it's not prayerless. Revelation always trumps wisdom every time. And last is circumstantial signs, which to me are a nightmare to try to figure out. I think they're only helpful retrospectively. I can look back and say, oh, yeah, God confirmed that along the way. I think if you're trying, if you're looking for direction, are you supposed to walk past the closed door or are you supposed to kick it down? I don't know. Are you supposed to walk through the open door or are you supposed to keep on going? I don't know. Like To me, those are things where you need to hear the Lord, and I think circumstantial signs can honestly be deceiving in a lot of ways. So I, I use circumstantial signs for confirmation. I don't use them for direction. You, you can if you want, and I'll help you pick up the pieces um, <laughs> after that falls apart. Three stages. Revelation, interpretation, application. What did God say? What does it mean? And then what am I supposed to do with it? What is the faithful response? All three of those things. Many of us, we, once we start to clue, kind of cluing in, oh, God is speaking to me, we get really excited because he's speaking to you on a regular basis. And so we have all this revelation coming to us. Then the next step is to say, what does this actually mean? And what am I supposed to do with it? Those, it's very important. Acts 21, 20 and 21. You can go back and read it. Paul knows from the Lord, I've got to go to Jerusalem, and when I go, I'm going to be arrested, and it's fine. Like, I know that's the deal for me. It's to go to Jerusalem, and it's to be arrested. And there's two different times he's basically in prayer meetings with folks who love him. And they get this revelation from the Lord. Paul's going to be, Paul's going to go to Jerusalem, and he's going to be arrested. And then they assume that that means don't go. That's the assumption. Well, if we know you're going to be arrested when you go, we, we're sensing that from the Lord. One guy actually um, acts out this thing where he wraps himself up and like pretends he has handcuffs on. He says to Paul, this is what's going to happen to you. Paul doesn't disagree with that. You're right. That is what's going to happen to me. But what they're saying was, well, therefore, you shouldn't go to Jerusalem. You're this great church planter. You're this missionary. You're this evangelist. If you go, that, that hurts the work. Of course God wouldn't want you to be arrested. Why would he ever want that? Well, God's already told Paul, hey, you're going to go and you're going to be arrested. There's, those guys have the revelation. They miss it on the application, which is huge, huge. It's great that you know what God is saying to you, not so great that you didn't use it in the right way. You're actually getting in the way of what God's trying to do through Paul. You're In some ways, you're an obstacle. Obedience for Paul is to go get arrested, and you're telling him not to. And so for us, that interpretation application thing is really important. That's why I think Council of the Saints is so key. I can make just about anything fit what I want it to say. And I need other people around me 
to help mold and shape and provide perspective. So again, big decisions. I'm looking for all three of those dots to line up. There are places in Acts where it says it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. It seemed good, this direct revelation from the Holy Spirit. It seemed good to us, counsel of the saints. Does it line up with what I know to be true in the Bible? you got a pretty good chance. That's a pretty good sense that you can then move ahead. Protection, real quick. It's primarily spiritual. No one can snatch us out of the hand of Jesus. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. So the idea there is the way, God take, the way Jesus takes care of us is, is he says, I've sealed you. You're mine forever. So for eternity, nobody can mess with that. If you've said yes to me, then nothing external to us is going to separate you from that relationship. So we can be confident and secure. Sometimes protection is physical as well. Prayer invites God to get involved. Prayer is an invitation. It's not information. So if there's an area where you need Jesus to protect you, you just ask him. Protect this relationship, protect this business, protect my body, whatever it is. Totally fine. You invite him to do that. But recognize God is more interested in your character than he is your comfort. And so there are times where he will not physically protect you. Because the suffering and the pain is a tool that he can use to make you more like Jesus and he's, honestly, that's his greatest desire for you. Romans eight twenty nine. he's predestined us to be conformed to the image of his son. That's what he's going for. And if some temporary pain along the way helps in that process, then he says, that's great, we can do that. We're going, but he's saying yes. Remember, I've already got you forever. Nobody's going to snatch you from my hand. Nothing can separate you from my love. So this temporary pain, this temporary discomfort that you're going through, this temporary suffering, it's not ultimate. It doesn't affect you eternally, except that it's a tool in my hand to make you more like Jesus. So let's, he makes that trade all day long. Our comfort for our character. He makes that trade all day long. And also for all of us, we're all going to die. Either Jesus comes back or we're all going to die. And for some of us, it's not going to be pleasant. Not every one of us is going to die in our sleep at whatever age we want to die in our sleep. Death is a doorway. It's not the final word. Go back and read Acts 12. Peter, James, John, they're the big three. James is arrested first and Herod kills him with the sword. And then Peter is arrested. And Peter is miraculously released from prison. Think if you're John. James is your brother. He got arrested and God doesn't appear to do anything. He lets him get killed with this sword. And then Peter gets arrested and he gets miraculously delivered. Put yourself in that spot. What's running through your mind? Does God love Peter more than James? Or was Peter more important than James? I don't know. Death is a doorway. It's not the final word for any of us. And at times... We will suffer, and every one of us, unless Jesus comes back, is going to die. There's going to be a time where he says, I'm not, I'm not dealing with this physical circumstance for you. I'm not going to make this any better. This is going to be the thing that kills you, if I can put it that bluntly. And that's okay, because nothing can snatch you from my hand. And so for all of us, it's not fatalistic at all. It's faithful to say God absolutely steps in. We have a good shepherd and he protects us and he heals us and he delivers us. 
And sometimes he doesn't change our physical circumstances. And it's not because he doesn't like us. It's not because he's not able. And it's not because he's not strong enough. It's because sometimes suffering makes us more like Jesus. And ultimately, death is just a doorway. It's not the final word. Last thing, provision. Spiritual and physical, often God meets needs through the body. Oftentimes, provision comes through us. It's you're the answer to other people's prayers. You can see that in Acts 44, uh, 33 and 34. Sometimes people have this idea that when, for God to provide means they just get to sit on their couch and God's going to put money in their bank account. I've honestly never seen that ever happen. There are times where you will get, God will give to you. Usually that's giving, it's through other people almost always. Oftentimes, one of the ways God will provide for you is through your J-O-B. That's what he'll do. He's given you an opportunity to work, and that thing will pay. And you can pray, God, I need my income to come up, or I need my expenses to go down. Sometimes that's provision. Provision looks like simplifying. You might not need more money. You just might need to spend less. Maybe what I think I need and what he thinks I need aren't the same thing. I don't need filet every night. Hot dogs are okay. And so some of that is recognizing, it's not minimizing God's provision in our life, it's recognizing God's provision in our life in all of the different ways that it comes to us. So I don't want you to hear me saying God doesn't provide and it's up to you to go out there and work as hard as you can. God absolutely provides. What I don't want you to hear me saying is that God provides while you sit on the couch and eat bonbons. That is rare that that happens. The way God tends to provide is through the body. That's kind of where that transparency and vulnerability comes in. People knowing what's going on, and oftentimes he'll provide that way. He provides through work that he's allowed us to do. And, and he also provides by shrinking our desires in some ways or teaching us to be content with less. And so I, I, don't, want, I don't want to minimize provision at all. I think you understand that. I just want you to have a fuller picture of what that means. All right, we're gonna, we've got to go. Close your eyes, please. Three things. Jesus is your good shepherd? Absolutely. If you've said yes to him, you're one of his sheep. And this is what he says to you. I laid down my life for you. Think about that. I've laid down my life for you. If you haven't said yes, why don't you just chew on that statement? He lays down his life for you. What do you need? What else needs to happen for you to say, if you're willing to give your life for me, I'm willing to give mine back for, to you. Those of you who have said yes, he says, I'm going to lead you. I'm going to protect you. And I'm going to provide for you. He's already protected you eternally. He's already provided for you spiritually. So here's my question this morning. Which of those three do you most need? Guidance, provision, or protection? You've got to pick one. Now you've got it. You can just pray this in your heart if you're willing. Jesus, I recognize that you are my good shepherd.
You're not just a good shepherd or the good shepherd. You are my good shepherd. You've laid down your life for me. And I recognize that you want to fill in the blank, whatever that was for you in my life. So I'm asking you, I'm inviting you to do that. Give me eyes to see where you're at work. Give me ears to hear what you're saying. Give me a heart that's responsive to your activity in my life. God, show me what it looks like to be faithful to you in this moment. I want to see what provision looks like in this circumstance. I want to see what protection looks like in this circumstance. I want to know what you're saying to me in terms of guidance. Not just what you're saying, but what I'm supposed to do with that. Two groups I want to pray for specifically before we do ministry time. One, God, I want to pray for people who are wrestling with this whole idea of physical protection and what that means for them very personally in their life and the life of a loved one. What does faithfulness look like? in the face of cancer or Alzheimer's or whatever these conditions are. God, my prayer is that you would bring healing into those bodies fully and completely. And if for whatever reason you're saying not this time, God, I pray that you would speak to those folks and they'd know and their heart would be settled and their family would be settled. But until that moment comes where you say not this time, God, I pray for faith to believe you for complete healing and that's where we're going to stand for them and for those who they love today. So that's you. I don't want you to hear me saying throw in the towel. I don't think that's the right thing to do. Until you feel like the Lord says, it's Paul. He prayed three times, God, take care of this. And God said no. And then Paul's like, all right, then I'm not going to ask again. Until you feel like you have that word from the Lord, no, I'm not going to take care of this in this way. This is, this is it. Then you keep fighting. God, I want to pray for those who every time we talk about hearing you, they just want to go run screaming out the door. It doesn't click. It doesn't work. They don't get it. God, I pray that you just roll the pressure off of them, any sense of inadequacy or any of that, God. That's just, those are all lies. And I pray that you just, just blow all of that off and they'd be able to relax. And I want you to do that. If I just, you just relax. Don't try to work something up. God, I pray that just in their hearts there be this openness to recognizing your already speaking voice. And my prayer is in the next three minutes as we close, they'd have a thought flash through their mind or they'd have a feeling in their gut. Maybe it'd even be something from another person, a word or a touch on the back that would let them know, hey, I'm speaking and you're one of my sheep, and I'm going to lead you. 
So if that's you, just take the pressure off and relax, trusting that God wants to lead you even more than you want to be led. So God, I pray you'd meet us in these next couple of minutes. Show us what it is to be faithful to the things you're stirring in our hearts. In Jesus' name.